Acts chapter 2, as we're continuing this study of Acts, it was six months ago, there was an article that was published, and the title of the article was How to Manage the Loneliness and Isolation of Remote Workers. That was uh, back in November this came out, and it was research into folks who had transitioned from being in a workplace to now working remotely for the most part at home and just dealing with some of the emotional stuff that goes with working entirely from home. And one of the findings was that interactions, face-to-face -face interactions amongst those people went down by 70% and then were replaced by email and text and online messaging. And so the human interaction changed significantly. They found in this research that a number of people were, were okay with that. Uh, those who would ordinarily classify themselves as introverts uh, were a little more comfortable with the idea of, of reducing face-to-face -face interactions and being at home. Um, but, but the reality is even those who would classify themselves that way even they know that total isolation, being separated from others, is hard, and it comes with some challenges. Uh, there is a desire to be together. Uh, secular psychologists have been researching this for decades. About 25 years ago, there were some findings of some research on what was described as the human need for connectedness, and one of the findings in this research was that people need to belong. They need some level of interaction within ongoing relationships. It's almost as if our creator made us that way, isn't it? If you, uh, we're in Acts 2, but if you, you think in Genesis chapter 2, this is where we get the pattern for this. In Genesis chapter 2, God has just completed the work of creation. Through the six days of creation, he has brought into existence the universe. He has uniquely created man in his image. He declares it all to be very good with, and you remember this from Genesis 2, with one glaring exception. Here's the planets and the stars and this man made from the dust of the earth and he is placed in a garden and he's surrounded with lush vegetation and it is a beautiful place with this remarkable assortment of animals and birds and fish. All very good until Genesis 2.18 says when the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. God specifically, if you recall the account, had his first man, Adam, interact with all of the animal kingdom. He, he, for the purposes of naming them, he brings these animals past Adam. And not one, not even the dog, provides the kind of connection or interaction of companionship that Adam needed in his soul. He was still alone. We were not made to live without human companionship. We were designed with a built-in need for, for interaction, for community, for fellowship together. That's why in the, it seemed like the old days now, a couple of months ago, people went out for meals together and they, they tailgated together at sports events and they played games together, even if it was an online community, and they did exercise classes together and, and book clubs and all of the things that, that we do in order to generate community. It is not good that man should be alone. So we are now starting week seven of this sort of remarkable period of human history. And that, that longing that you have in your heart that hungers for face-to-face -face interaction is not just some emotion, it's not some mere biological need, 
It is, Scripture will show us, the cry of a heart that has been created for community. And that is especially true for we who are believers in Jesus Christ, because from the very birth of the church, as we're going to see this morning, it is God's design that we have been called to do life together. Acts chapter 2, largely Peter's sermon, that first Christian sermon after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter has essentially done an expository sermon of three Old Testament passages, one from the book of Joel, two from the Psalms. And and what he has done is shown from Scripture, from God's Word, that it had always been God's plan to send his son, Jesus, to be the Messiah, and that the Messiah would come to save people from their sins. He would bear the wrath of, of God for against sin. And then this Jesus, who is Lord, would rise from the dead. And he would rule and reign, and he would pour out his spirit on those who believed, as we are now seeing here in Acts chapter 2. Peter turns the focus entirely to Jesus, starting with verse 21, when he says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And in the very next verse, he identifies that that name is the name of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the the Savior, as Peter says. Peter has brought to us to in his conclusion, and he is the Lord. He is God in flesh. So he has come to save. He has also come to rule. Last week we read Peter's answer to the crowd when, when their response to his sermon is, what shall we do? They have been cut to the heart by what Peter has preached. That is the work of the Spirit in them as God's word is communicated. And so Peter's response, as we saw last time, is to repent. To call on Jesus, you must believe in Jesus for who he is. He is Savior. He is Lord. You cannot shortchange the identity of Jesus. You cannot leave out the work of Jesus. You must believe that he is the Savior who died on the cross to bring forgiveness of sins to you and I. And so repenting is turning from any other belief in who Jesus is, or any disregard of Jesus, any other belief that would say, I can, I can achieve some sort of salvation, some sort of glory apart from Jesus, and resting it now fully in him, putting faith in the death and resurre- resurrection of Jesus. So we must repent, and then Peter said, and we saw it last time, be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. There is the, the outward um, expression in baptism of the inward turning of the heart. The heart repents and believes the baptism is the, the proclamation of that. Those who trust in Jesus for salvation are then entered into a new community. And if you look at verse 41, Acts 2.41 says, So those who received his word, that is Peter, those who received his word, were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So this is Jerusalem. This is now following the preaching of Peter and the response of the people, and it says that those who believed in Jesus were added. I, I think that's such an interesting word. He doesn't simply identify them as believers in Jesus Christ, sort of by title or identification specifically of who they are. His description of them is that they are added. They are brought into, joined to something. You and I, here in America, we tend to think in pretty independent, individualistic type terms. I am this, I am that, I live here, I work here, I own this, I do this. We understand sort of identity as being who I am 
as a person and what I do. But from the start, Christianity views followers of Jesus as being added to something greater than themselves, being added to, to something else. And so we would say, add it to what? There's two answers that the book of Acts gives us when it speaks of this adding these believers. Because in fact, here in verse 41, it, it's, it's a little vague in the sense that it says there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Well, added to what? The emphasis here is what we're going to see in verses 42 to 47. They are added to the community. They are added to the fellowship of believers. And we get that from verse 47 when it says, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It is a, a, a multiplication of the, the community of believers. Uh, this is those who trust in Christ being joined to the body of believers, now becoming brothers and sisters with one another. The other aspect of this addition that comes up later in the book of Acts is in Acts 5.14 and Acts 11.24, and it speaks of being added to the Lord. As new believers, we are not only added to the community, but we are added to the Lord. Acts 5.14 says, And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. So there is, at the moment of salvation, there is union with the body of believers, with brothers and sisters, but there is also being added to Christ, being joined to the Lord, that supernatural work of God's Spirit that now joins us and causes us to be in Christ added to him. Now, here's why that matters, and here's the verses we're going to look at this morning, starting in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is a sweet passage, and it, it gives us a a glimpse, a look into the, the first believers, the earliest church. And there is a pattern here for us that we can learn from. As we see these disciples and we see what's being described here and we see these attitudes and actions, there is something that we see here that's not simply described here in Acts 2, but then will be prescribed elsewhere in the New Testament. Some of the things that we're going to see here that are set before us as the pattern of the early church are then prescribed later in the New Testament as indeed being the pattern that we continue to follow. So I want to boil these down to two descriptions of this community of believers that I think we see in this passage, two descriptions, two patterns that I think we see here. From the beginning of the church of Jesus Christ, believers in Christ gathered as a devoted community of worshipers and as an empowered community of witnesses, a devoted community of worshipers and an empowered community of witnesses. Let me, in fact, let me fill that out just a little bit more. You could say a devoted community of worshipers who as a result grow in love and maturity and service 
and also an empowered community of witnesses who are used by God to testify of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're essentially two sides of the same coin of what we're going to see here in Acts 2. The, the one perspective is from inside the local church. It is what the believers experience. It is what's happening in the community, the life with one another and what that is like. And then the other side of the coin is how the local church now is seen by those who are on the outside as they are observing this body of believers in particular here in Jerusalem during the early days. So let's start with the devoted community of worshipers. Verse 42 again says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Then look down at verse 46, elaborates on this. And daily, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Devoted community of worshipers. Luke says here in verse 42, and he reiterates in verse 46, that there were certain practices, certain standards, certain elements of what it was that they did as a church, sort of the markers that define them as a church. There's lots of different communities and organizations of people that gather for various causes. He tells us they devoted themselves and gives us some specifics that mark out what a local church looks like. When he says devoted themselves in verse 42, that's the idea of persisting, resolving, being dedicated to something. These, these are the things that become the priorities. These are the things that the, the local community of believers now insists on. This is what we must do as this gathered body. And they are teaching truth, sincere fellowship, and corporate prayer. He gives them to us in verse 42. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. If any of these are missing in a local church, even today, something's wrong. Because this is the pattern for local New Testament churches. Teaching, fellowship, corporate prayer, all must be part of what we do. First one, though, the priority, he says, is the, the teaching of the apostles. He's speaking of God's truth that has been passed down from Jesus to those first eyewitnesses who are the apostles, who then are passing that teaching, that instruction about Jesus Christ along, which comes to us in the form of the New Testament. And so if it, it, our understanding of this, this devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, is we are doing that by virtue of studying what the, the New Testament says about Jesus Christ, about who he is and what he's done and what we are called to. Uh, essentially, this, this first piece, teaching truth, is fundamentally what Jesus Christ commanded when he commissioned the disciples in Matthew chapter 28, when he says, make disciples of all nations, how? teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. From the very start, Jesus said to his disciples, this will be a, a teaching ministry. Your service, your work, the foundational element of it will be instruction, will be taking what you have received from me, taking God's truth, and now teaching it to others. We see it again and again in the book of Acts. When the apostles begin to move out into other areas, when they go to other synagogues or other locations, they teach, they begin to explain how Jesus Christ is the Savior. When those communities are born, when people come to faith in Christ and they begin to gather, the focal point again is teaching. It's what Peter has done in Acts chapter 2. The birth of the church 
it immediately begins with this teaching ministry as Peter begins to specifically explain who Jesus is, how one must call on him to be saved because of what Jesus has done, that he has died and risen again, and he teaches how to respond. As believers in Jesus Christ, we should hunger for the teaching of God's word. We should be devoted to reading and studying and, and hearing the exposition of God's word. When verse 46 says, day by day they are attending the temple together, we understand from elsewhere in Acts that this is not simply gathering there at the temple, but they are there for the purpose of, this is, this is sort of the public gathering. They don't have a church building. They don't have homes that are large enough now for what is thousands of people in this early church. And so it's the courtyards around the temple where the early church begins to gather so that they can worship together and they can receive instruction together. Acts 4.1 describes the apostles being on the temple grounds. It says they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And then in Acts chapter 5, again, passages that we'll get to, this comes after they have been warned by the Jewish religious leaders. In fact, they have been threatened. Stop teaching. Stop spreading this, this message of Jesus Christ. And it says they entered the temple at daybreak, and what they do, they began to teach. The, the, the foundational element on which we rest the local church is on the, the, the teaching of God's word. The belief that this is how God speaks to us is through his word. John Stott summarized it this way, the spirit of God leads the people of God to submit to the word of God. And that's why in, in all that we do here as Grace Bible Church, we are looking to see that we are communicating truth, whether it's in children's ministry or men's or women's ministries or youth ministry. The, the, the desire is to, to bring believers together, to enjoy the community that we have, but to fundamentally be sure that we are communicating God's truth because that begins here. They are devoted to teaching. That teaching then brings about the rest of the effects. That teaching leads to, the next one is, this sincere fellowship. Because they are drawn together by this belief in this body of truth, they are now brought together in devotion to one another. And so verse 42 says that they are devoted to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. That Greek word for fellowship means common sharing things together. It is, it is having stuff that, that belongs to the community. In fact, verse 44 uses another form of the same word. It says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And that's that word for fellowship. It is sort of common sharing. It's mutual participation. It, it is people who are all different in, in so many ways who are now brought together and who now hold to something in union. And that, and that starts for us at the moment of salvation. We, in salvation, come to the same God from the same starting point as sinners who are under a curse and who are experiencing God's judgment. We come as, as sinners all alike. We come to the same God who, through the saving work of the same Spirit, brings us to life. And, and the, the, the work of the Savior is the same for us, and the Spirit now is poured out, and the same Spirit now is given to us. That, that sameness puts us on a, on a level field 
We, from the very beginning, hold the gospel in common. We came with the same desperate need of forgiveness of sins, and the same Savior poured out his life on our behalf, and we received the same spirit. Division and, and bitterness along ethnic lines is tragic enough, but it should never exist amongst a community that fundamentally understands that we are all made in the image of God and that we are all sinners in need of God's grace for salvation. That is the sameness, that what we share in common. This early church is made up of pilgrims from throughout the region. We know from the, the diverse languages that the disciples were given to speak um, early on in, in, in Acts chapter 2, that there were people from a variety of areas who had come as pilgrims to Jerusalem. And, and, and there is there is separateness. There is different ethnicities, all Jewish and yet from different cultures and places, and they have now come together as believers in Jesus Christ. There will still be, and, and we'll see some of this in Acts, there will still be some tension, still be some struggles between Jews and Gentiles, and that will require further teaching, and it will require the, the work of the Holy Spirit to overcome. But what is born in Acts chapter 2 is a community of people who all held in common the fact that they had been saved from sin by the work of Jesus Christ. We all ultimately give various Elements in our testimony that are different, our personal story, but the fundamental point of every testimony, every time someone's baptized here, it ultimately points back to the saving work of Jesus Christ. It was what he did on the cross that has brought us into this body, and it surpasses any of our differences. This fellowship is sweet, and it is a sincere fellowship. That word um, for generous down in verse 46 when it speaks of generous hearts really has the idea of sincerity, of, of pure hearts. They are together. It says they, they broke bread, the fellowship and the breaking of the bread. It, it describes them having meals together, having meals together and then helping each other with material needs. Those who have more are, 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 are selling things or giving things so that they can help those who have less. When verse 42 speaks of the breaking of the bread, um, we, we tend to sort of immediately think when we see that, that refers to communion in some way, that that is the Lord's Supper, and it may refer to that. This may be an early reference to the practice of the Lord's Supper, the remembrance that we have of the death of Jesus Christ. But understand, Luke uses that very same language, breaking of the bread, in Luke 24, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, after he has been with those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, he sits down with them to have a meal, and it says it was, um, it, it, Jesus was known to them in the breaking of the bread. He was at the table with them. He took the bread. He blessed it, broke it, gave it to them. This is not a, not a Lord's Supper. He wasn't talking to them in particular about the Lord's Supper at this point. He was doing the Jewish practice of having a meal together in the breaking of the bread. And it says that when he did, they recognized him in the breaking of the bread. That was a very customary way of starting a meal in, in Jewish tradition. The host, the head of the home, pronounces the blessing over the meal, takes the bread, breaks it, and then begins to pass it around. Still tradition today in, in Jewish homes in many places when they gather for a meal to begin with the words, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has brought forth bread from the earth. And then the bread is held up and it is broken and it is distributed to all those who are gathered. So, so this may... This may include an early indication of the Lord's Supper. That's not entirely clear from what's here because what it certainly does is it speaks of the fact that they shared 
meals together. When we get to 1 Corinthians 11, we're going to see that the Lord's Supper and meals together seem to coincide, that they would do that as, as one. But here what is very clear is they are daily meeting together. Verse 46 says, day by day, attending the temple and breaking bread in their homes. This fellowship is something they are devoted to. They are practicing. We know that, that amongst these early believers, there are these pilgrims who have come from outlying communities, who have traveled long distances. They've now come to faith in Jesus Christ, and there is no community of believers to return home to. In fact, they're probably already beginning to experience some of the little bits of the persecution that will come full force in Acts chapter 8 when, when people begin to turn completely against these Christians. But at this point, they are staying in Jerusalem. They are worshiping with this new community of brothers and sisters. And, and so we have to presume that amongst those travelers are some who eventually are in need. There, there is some need, some provision. Not all are able to work right there in Jerusalem. And so the body is now selling possessions in order to distribute the proceeds. It says in verse 45 to one another. Much has been made historically in verse 45 about selling their possessions, belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. This is not mandating an economic policy. It is not endorsing some form of governing philosophy. This is a description of the nature of the generosity of these believers in their fellowship. This is a willing, not under compulsion, devotion that says, I want to serve you. I want to minister to your needs. This is the essence of what we believe, that in Christ we have received life. In Christ we have received blessing and forgiveness and out of that now comes a desire to be generous, to be willing to share with others, not out of any compulsion. There have been a number of times in recent weeks when people in our church family have asked if there are ways that they can give to those who are in need, if there are ways that they can serve people, asking if there are people who are suffering particular needs with job loss, economic problems of some form. And I have I've been so wildly encouraged by just the number of times people have said, I, I want to help in some way. I want to share in, in some way over and above the, the giving to the church. Is there a way to, to minister to other people who are in need? And that is a beautiful display of loving Christian fellowship. That is what he talks about when it says of, of a glad and generous heart. Like I said to you, that word generous has the idea of sincerity. It, it is giving purely out of the desire to give, not because somebody's telling them to give in some way, but it is because they want to. They are together. They are sharing together. Verse 45, in fact, says, and they were, uh, verse, uh, excuse me, 44, and all who believed were together. Verb idea is that the sense that this is an ongoing kind of thing. They are meeting often. They are sharing with one another. They are having meals together. They are in one another's homes. They are at the temple listening to the teaching of the word together. They hold the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ in union with each other and in common, and it has created this bond for the kind of fellowship that, that frankly, you and I right now crave. Church, that we have this right now. We have me speaking into a camera and most of you at home um, we long for more than that. We long to see our brothers and sisters who we are rooted with, in union with, in Christ. We want to be together as, as family. 
this online ministry is a sweet blessing in that God has provided the technology to do this. We are able to, to, to sit here at different places and study the word together, but this is an inadequate substitute for the real thing. No matter what we do here, there is a longing in our hearts to see one another's faces and to hear our voices together and to pray together and to say amen together at God's word. That is, that is the fellowship we are called to as a church family. And that is, that is what we should be longing to, that, that God would bring an end to this season and we would be able to meet together face to face. Teaching the truth, sincere fellowship. Last one of the, the, these key pieces that he says are, are marks of a local church is corporate prayer. It is the church coming together and crying out together. They are devoted to praying together. I think if we're honest here, of these, this, this season of distance probably has only amplified the fact that praying together is an area where most of us probably struggle mightily to emulate the early church. Uh, corporate prayer amongst many local churches is, is always sort of the weak spot. Those first believers faced real hostility. They faced real need. They understood the urgency of crying out. They were just learning who Jesus was. They were just beginning to grasp these truths. And so they were compelled when they came together to cry out to Jesus for help, to pray together corporately. The trouble for us is when we feel comfortable and we feel like we've generally got enough of our own resources or safety nets and we fail to see how desperately we still need moment by moment God's provision. For us, God's care for us, that we are branches attached to a vine from which we must draw sustenance. And sometimes we don't sense that in the same way, and we don't pray together in the same way. Those early believers faced real threats, imprisonment, loss of family relationships, maybe loss of income. They had questions. What's going to happen? When's Jesus come back? What's next for us? How do we do this, this community thing? How does Jesus sustain us? What do we do when we face temptation and trials? All this instruction now that is still to come from the apostles. And so they pray when they are together. They corporately cry out. Jesus, when he commissioned his followers, and whether it's Matthew 28, whether it's Luke 24, whether it's Acts 1, in all of those references, he speaks of the fact either that he is with them, I am always with you, Matthew 28, or he says in Luke 24 and Acts 1, the Spirit will be with you. My presence will still abide with you. He gives them this assurance each time, you cannot do this without me. You can't do this solo. And so as a body... We need to grow in our devotion to corporate prayer. This is an area where we, we continue to, to try to press. I'm grateful for the, the ministry of those of you who get together online Sunday mornings at 815, who, who come together and pray. I was just so encouraged. Um, Bob sent me a text last week and said, hey, folks are just, just finished up praying for the service this morning. Um, we as a body, we are foolish if we think we can do this solo. We are called to come together corporately for the teaching, for the fellowship, but also to cry out in prayer. That's the pattern set before us, a devoted community of worshipers who prioritized those things. But they're also an empowered community of witnesses. Look at verse 43 again. It says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. This is our first sense of what the 
the outsiders are seeing as this community that's now 3,000 and growing within the city of Jerusalem is, is there gathering at the temple and the apostles are teaching and there's a, a greater and greater public presence of this community. This is our first glimpse now into to what the outsiders are beginning to think as awe comes upon them. You may have a little footnote in your text next to the word awe that says fear. That is the word. We get our word phobia from this Greek word. It's not just Awe sort of speaks of, you know, it could be a word that we could say when we see fireworks. We're just sort of in awe of the spectacle of that and the beauty of that. It, it really is the word fear. There is a sense of, of reverence, of some even level perhaps of trepidation. Commentator Daryl Bach puts it this way, the community, speaking of the believing community, generates ongoing fear among every soul of those outside the community. So when he says in verse 43, awe came upon every soul, not only is there a sense within the body of believers that God is doing this mighty work in their midst and they are drawing near to Jesus Christ and they are reverentially in awe of him, but the community outside now is also beginning to witness something. Peter has just stood in Jerusalem and, and spoken at the top of his lungs about Jesus being Lord and Savior, and thousands are repenting and turning to him. Remember when he preached, it says the people listening were cut to the heart. What do we do? That's the work of God's Spirit to generate a, a, a right response of conviction in the hearts of those who, who hear this truth and who see God's people. The work of God's Spirit in the midst of the community of believers does not go unnoticed by the world. We may see nothing but opposition to Christianity or mocking of Christianity, but we can take comfort from a passage like this to know that there is something that happens in the unbeliever where there is some degree of conviction that they are aware of. There is some sense of of rightful sort of conviction about what God is doing in the lives of these people. Some outside the body of Christ may regard themselves as sophisticated and mock Christianity as being foolish, and they may assail you for your faith. But we have every reason to believe that the Spirit of God working through the people of God as they proclaim the Word of God brings about the same response today as it did in first century Jerusalem when it says, and fear came upon every soul. There's some sense, and, and we see it in our culture today, maybe in the sense of, of angry rejection of, of, of Christianity, of, of, of Jesus Christ, but that is born out of a sense of fearing God of being aware of the conviction of sin that God brings. They are devoted to these things, and God is bringing about by his power evidence of the reality of Jesus Christ and the need for forgiveness of sins, and he's doing it through the community. And that is causing some, and we're going to see this in Acts chapter 5, the, the story that we typically uh, refer to primarily as the story of Ananias and Sapphira. The lead-up to that is as this proclamation is going out, there are lots of people watching, and, and some are being sort of, they're just moving away because of what they're, they are not going to come to Jesus Christ. They are not going to bow the knee, and there is a fear that moves them away, and others are drawn by that, these divergent responses. Jesus Christ promises us in the Gospel of John that his spirit will bring conviction to the world through his people, and that's what we're seeing here. As he empowers us as he transforms us into this body of believers who loves one another and has this distinctive sort of sacrifice and service of one another, onlookers see something that they, they can't simply explain away. 
and they are responding to that. For some, fear that moved them to arm's length, and for others, verse 47 says, praising God, this is the body, and having favor with all the people. So there's also this response of, they're respecting what they see, some of them. They're showing favor to these people. And the Lord added to their number daily, day by day, those who were being saved. God is taking this little community, just brand new, young believers who have just come to faith in Jesus Christ, and the sincerity of their fellowship and the devotion to the teaching and their crying out to God in prayer, God is using that to build his church. He's using that as a testimony to the world around and is bringing people to faith in Jesus Christ. There's just one last thing I want you to see before we leave this passage. One last word that I want to make sure that I point out. Verse 46 again says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. I want you to stop on that word glad for just a second. That, that word, the Greek word for that is exuberant joy. This is one of those places where I, I feel like our English translators have maybe undersold us just a little bit with the word glad because we kind of, we think, oh, I'm, I'm glad, you know, it's a good day or there wasn't much traffic or it makes me glad. But this is more. The, the same word is used in Luke 144. Mary, who is pregnant with Jesus, goes to visit her relative Elizabeth, who is pregnant with John. And if you recall the story, the, the baby inside Elizabeth's womb leaps. And Luke 144, Elizabeth said, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. There's the same word that's translated glad here when it says that joy that is expressed in this, in this movement of this child. Same Greek word that the, the translators are using here, calling glad in 246. It's also the same word in the doxology of the book of Jude. At the end of Jude, verse 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. That is the same word that speaks of these glad and generous hearts, glad hearts in Acts 246. And I point that out because I think there's a chance that when we read a passage like Acts 2, 42 to 47, we just sort of fly right by that phrase. Oh, they had glad hearts. They were happy to, to see each other, and, and they were generous, and, and so on. I, I just want to make sure you see that their hearts were overflowing with joy. Day by day, they were meeting with each other for worship, and they were meeting so they could hear the teaching in the temple, and they were gathering in one another's homes to share meals together, and their hearts were filled with Joy. It, it, there, there was a, a, an internal response that reflects the work of the Spirit that is just delightful exuberance for the worship and for the fellowship that they are sharing together, listening to God's Word, lifting their voices together in song and in prayer and crying out. Brothers and sisters, there is, there is something so unique about life in the community of believers that we share in a local church. What we have right now is it's good, but it's not best. 
In fact, even when we get back together again, we know that's better, but even that's not yet best. Best will ultimately come one day when we stand in the presence of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and we are joined from the saints of generations before us, and together we sing and we worship and we praise him. But in the meantime, God has given us community. He's given us local church so we can begin to get a foretaste of that so we can begin to experience what it is to be part of a devoted community of worshipers and an empowered community of witnesses. Let's pray together. We thank you, God, for your design. This building of community, this putting us in fellowship and communion with one another goes all the way back to creation. It's not an afterthought on your part, not a sudden need that rose up that you saw and had to respond to. It is in the very nature of our DNA. It is in the way that you have made us, that you showed to Adam right from the very start that everything in all of creation could not meet the need of that human companionship. Ultimately, we, we know our greatest need is to be right with you. It is to bow before you. It is to be forgiven. It is to be in right relationship with you. But it is by your sweet design then that you have taken those who you have brought to faith, who you have saved from their sin, and you take and add them to the community. You join us together. Lord, I thank you for each and every brother and sister who calls Grace Bible Church of Lorton their home church, who sees this as a place where they come together for the study of your word, for corporate worship, for fellowshipping together, for prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for the sweetness of what we share together. Thank you that even though we are a part that you have by your spirit fanned the flames of that longing within us, cause us not to grow weary of that. Convict us if we somehow come to the place where we are so content with being apart that we don't long to see face to face our brothers and sisters and to stand alongside them and to serve them and to be served by them. Help us, Father, to trust you and rest in you and believe in you until that day when, when whatever shape or form a reunion begins to take place. We plead with you to bring an end to this deadly sickness, not simply so we can be together, but for the sake of sparing lives, of causing people to know who Jesus Christ is. Help us even during this season, in whatever distant ways we can, to still be a witness, to still show the, the joy that is in our hearts, the generosity that is in us to share, the longing within us to love others, even as you have generously loved us. Thank you for the community of believers. Thank you for the other communities that surround us, the other local churches in this area of, of believers in Jesus Christ. Some are going through different struggles than, than we might be experiencing. Some are finding financial hardship more commonly. Lord, we, we thank you that you are present in your church. Pray for your strength and your provision for all those who proclaim the true gospel of Jesus Christ, who stand firm on your word. We uphold those who surround us and pray that you would strengthen them and draw them together. Thank you for the gospel on which we come to you, that which joins us together in common. 
We celebrate it and we worship you together in Jesus' name. Amen.